This excellent medical student-led podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be used as medical advice under any circumstance. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. Um, episode 16 of Alert and Oriented. We want to start off the episode first and foremost by congratulating Kevin. He matched a week ago now yeah. at Northwestern. Um, we're so excited for him and selfishly very happy that he'll be staying close to us. So we got a couple new discussants here that'll introduce themselves shortly, but I'll hand it over to Nick. Yeah, not much to say other than really excited for uh, this interesting case that we have here and just kind of excited to hear Al and Sam kind of talk through it and, and looking forward to just learning along the way because I think Megan and I can both agree that there's a lot to learn from this case. And also interestingly, Dr. Abrams and Kevin here, they actually do not know the final diagnosis or anything about this case, which is unique. So they can pitch in the discussion blinded as well here. So that should be fun. But yeah, anyway, we'll, uh, we'll let Al and Sam introduce themselves. Sam, you can go ahead first. Sure. Hi everyone. My name is Sam Rudisil. I'm a third year med student here at Rush Medical College. Interested in pursuing a career in orthopedic surgery. I'm Al Horning. I'm also a third year medical student here at Rush Medical College. Bueller repetitive. Uh, also interested in orthopedic surgery <laughs> to get it the Awkwardness out of the way, Sam and I are both from Minnesota as well. So there's a lot of things that are going to be pretty similar <laughs> from us today. So yeah, we'll keep it interesting for everybody though. <laughs> that was great. All right, Megan, do you want to go ahead and uh, start with the first aliquot? Get started. All right. So aliquot one, we have a 66-year-old female presenting to the ED with two days of intermittent nose bleeding. No trauma or inciting event, states the bleeding's been mild, but she hasn't been able to stop it just with the Kleenex, doesn't get nosebleeds frequently, and denies any headaches, dizziness, shortness of breath. So just to start off, we have this female here coming in with a nosebleed. Do you guys have a framework for just how you kind of think about uncontrolled nosebleed? So the first thing that comes to mind for me is, although she's never had a history of nosebleeds, I'd be interested to learn if she had history of bleeding outside of nosebleeds in earlier in life, whether that be manifested through heavy menstrual bleeding, if she has any family history of coagulopathy. I would, the fact that she's unable to stop it with Kleenex and pressure kind of helps me to localize it a little bit within the sinus cavity. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, biggest things are just kind of hitting on some of the past medical history, as well as like any other sort of an entitlement or inciting things like medications that potentially could be relevant to the situation. I think it's a little bit interesting. I probably would ask her about like some positional sorts of things. If she noticed it's, it's worse with certain activities with moving, like when she is getting up, those sorts of things would probably be towards the front of mine. Just thinking as like, if there's anything that could make it a little bit better, a little bit worse, um, little maybe in a different direction, kind of give you like, like you said, where the sinus cavity, what vessels I would be like, maybe thinking about more that would be involved. Sure. Even from a history standpoint, environmentally, anything that's been different over the past two days, mm -hmm. her hydration status, if she has, you know, dry mucous membranes, it might be more prone to cracking and bleeding. You guys did a great job. You kind of hit on everything. Like, is this something as benign as just like, you know, it's dry in Chicago, it's the winter or something more systemic? Like, does she have a longstanding history of coagulopathy? Um, I think the meds are really important too, because as we know, a lot of meds that can and predispose people to bleeding. So yeah, I think that you guys hit on all the major ones. Evan and Dr. Abrams, anything to add? Yeah, I think, you know, this is fun <laughs> not knowing where this is headed. So <laughs> we're in the seat where we get to listen and reason along our two discussions, but also you guys as listeners. One thing I like, just thinking of base rate, 
unlikely 66 year old female, but wouldn't be out of the ordinary. I would ask about drug use, particularly co- intranasal cocaine use, because that's common, can be a common cause for someone to have nose bleeding and might be something we easily overlook just initially. Other than that, my differential for intermittent nose bleeding is needs some work. I'm not sure <laughs> how I'll organize that. We'll see where you guys take us. Sorry, Sam and Al. Yeah. We're not dealing with too much bone stuff here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is worth the case for sure. But no, you guys, in my mind, hit the, hit, hit the high points. I, and I go back to, to medications also. People take aspirin. People take, they take other prescribed and over-the-counter medication. And then, as Kevin says, non-prescribed, non-over-the-counter medications that can put people at risk of this. And, and like Megan says, it's Chicago, it's the winter. You know, how many people come in with nosebleeds just because it's really dry out? So, I mean, I didn't even think about too, like you're bringing up with allergies, how many people are using like vasodilators and can increase bleeding. Probably don't follow the directions for them as well. Yeah. I think what you said about not like excluding drug use just based on her age. I feel like a lot of times that, you know, on some of the older patients were like, less likely to ask about like sexual history or drug use and it's almost like discriminating against them in a way because yeah. they're, you know, they're allowed to do whatever they want. So yeah, I think that that's a really good point. All right. We'll take Aliphat 2. Yeah. So Aliphat 2, he just has some additional information. So this patient's past medical history is uh, hypertension. Um, she also had a recent hospitalization for COVID-19 that was 30 days prior to this presentation. During that hospitalization, it was complicated by a right upper extremity um, DVT, which they treated with heparin um, in the hospital at that time. And she was transitioned to a Pixaban as an outpatient about 25 days prior to this presentation. She also has a past history of hepatitis C, though she's not on any medications and doesn't follow up with any uh, doctors on a regular basis for this. Her medications are just that I picks a band five milligrams twice daily that was prescribed after her last hospitalization. In terms of surgical history, she had a right shoulder arthroplasty in 1998 and then a carotid arthroplasty revision in 2001, but no other um, surgical history. She had no allergies and or significant medical history and social history. She denies tobacco, alcohol, or drugs. She lives alone, functionally independent, um, and has not seen a doctor in many years. So I think that that's a good, good start to some, a little bit more additional information there. So having said that, does this add or subtract to what you're thinking? Does it uh, lead your thought processes in any different way? I mean, like immediately I see the hypertension and I don't see her on any medications for it. So like my thought process goes to like, what are, what are our blood pressure like levels like right now? Like. How well controlled are they? Because that could always be like a potential elevated blood pressures within that area. Potentially could be like a reason for why you would have exposure slash bleeding. Sure. And particularly when, if she lays supine, if this has been intermittent for the past two days or so, if she's noticed any temporal connections to when she's supine and maybe that blood pressure cranially is, is higher, even if only slightly. The other thing that I noticed off the bat is the fact that she relatively recently was started on Apixaban and also has a history of untreated hepatitis C. So possibly a little two hit cause of an acquired coagulopathy there. Just something that I explain the leak there with hepatitis C. So with hepatitis C, you're going to have liver effects, right? So you're going to have probably a thrombocytopenia as well as impaired synthesis of coagulation factors. 
And then if you add on an anticoagulant and a pixaban on top of that, you would be more prone to bleeding. Freak. Otherwise though, your ortho procedures are not, <laughs> not that interesting <laughs> to me right now. And it kind of eliminates like things that we talked about, allergies or family history of sorts of coagulopathies that could potentially relevant for her. But in this case, are cross off my list now. Yeah. I like how you mentioned kind of a framework that you use to think about leading um, in terms of mentioning the coagulopathy, coagulation cascade, things you started to kind of think about here. And, and so kind of just maybe having a framework for why this patient could be bleeding from like a pathophysiologic standpoint is really helpful to have in your head because then you can break it down into kind of different causes. If that were to kind of be the case, um, obviously we don't have enough information to really formulate that, but just um, at the beginning when we're just getting this information, those are good things. Is there anything else you guys had thoughts before we? There's so much information for sure. I mean, even like the, the fact that like your social history, she hasn't seen a doctor in many years. Like there's a lot of things that she's missed from a standpoint of screening information. Like she had a right upper surrogate DVT, like cancer's kind of always on your diagnosis, somebody a little bit older, like, yes, we obviously think that like things you're more likely to have clots and those sorts of things, but like it can show up as bleeding as you get up clotting in one area and hypocoagulability in another. So that's like something I like think about. There's so many factors that she's been missed out on from like a history standpoint and like screening standpoint that needs to be addressed. I'd be interested to learn if she required respiratory support during her COVID-19 hospitalization as well. And if so, what, what types she needed, they can, I mean, obviously the sinuses are part of the, the airway. So if there was anything that could cause, you know, some chronic inflammation there, she'd be more prone to bleeding as well. So I, I think I can't answer this. So for her last hospitalization, she, she wasn't intubated and to my knowledge, she was on oxygen support or see steroids hospitalization for the COVID, but she did not, she wasn't intubated. Which just basal cannula, like high flow or like, what was the, yeah, there were, there are oxygen requirements, less than intubation specifically on exactly hundred percent. Sure. And without any, that could cause irritation to the area too. Basal. So you guys are the ortho guys. I would imagine a right shoulder arthroplasty in 1998 was a pretty big procedure. <laughs> and, and yeah, she, oh, for sure. And she didn't, she didn't, looks like she came through that surgery. I don't know about that. The, yeah. Then the, she had a revision. Yeah. So she came through those surgeries sort of in good, in good shape yep. based on what we know. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I obviously like from. You know, a selfish background. I want to know why she corroded, <laughs> had corrosion of her arthroplasty, but like, I don't think it's probably, I mean, you could think of like potential autoimmune sorts of things uh, that we think about, at least from like our standpoint of corrosion, but total shoulder arthroplasty, like that's really far down the list of why you'd have a revision. And again, probably it's not causally linked to this patient's current. It, the other thing is she's bled and clotted, you know. Yeah. So she, she's, she's gone from one extreme to the next. Yeah. She's been given medicine to, to make her, to make her more likely to bleed, but she's still done both in a 30 day period. Mm -hmm. For me, I was looking at the, the past surgical history in particular. For me, it rules out an inherited coagulopathy. Doesn't mean she doesn't have an acquired coagulopathy, mm -hmm. but that's just evidence for me that she tolerated that procedure back then. And, and there's no note. I think I would like to think they would 
something would carry along with her that she had complications related to that. If for sure she did have an inherited coagulopathy, but we're not seeing that. Yeah, where there's no thickening arthrosis after her <laughs> total shoulder. Yeah. I, yeah, I think that's a really, yeah, that's a good example of how something seemingly irrelevant actually does tell us something here. Because that's not actually something I thought about. No, I think when you think about bleeding, looking at certain history and seeing if there's complications, that's something that I try to do. And I, I wanted to say one more thing is just at face value, or I, I'll speak for myself, attributed the DBT to the fact that she was hospitalized for COVID. But you guys both mentioned like, she hasn't seen a doctor in many years. She's way behind on screening things. Sure, it could be DBT related to COVID, but it could also be hypercoagulability due to a malignancy that has been festering. A lot, a lot. There's so much here that... Yes. <laughs> there's a lot to attack. <laughs> no, I was going to mention that too, because like when you think about DVTs, the arm's not usually a place that's like yeah. difficult to get them. So I'm hoping they did like a pretty thorough workup and she was hospitalized to make sure that she didn't have any other like underlying cause for it. But as we know, COVID is associated with all these coagulopathies. And so it could have easily just been like, yeah, this COVID positive patient now has a clot in her arm and, you know, there seems to be a definite lint. So... I think you guys did a great job really like touching on everything. Like it would have been easy to just be like, oh, she's on a blood thinner. That's why her nose is bleeding. But we looked at the liver, you looked at like possible malignancy. Her hypertension just not seeing a doctor. So I think you guys kind of covered it all. We'll move on to Aliquot. Okay, so we got some vitals to start with. Blood pressure 141 over 95. Heart rate 74, temp 98.5. Breathing 15 breaths per minute, setting 92%. 99. Or sorry, 99% on room air. For exam, HNT, she has dried blood in the bilateral nares, no active bleeding, on sphere, anecteric. Cardiac exam, regular rate and rhythm, normal S1, S2, good peripheral pulses, on Her abdomen soft, non-tender, non-distended, no automegaly, mild splenomegaly, normal active bowel sounds. Extremities without erythema, warmth or swelling, and then skin, um, no rashes, several bruises on the arms, and mild petechiae noted on the lower extremities. So. Whoever wants to start and kind of tackle some of the things that we have. Well, from a vital sign standpoint, I'm not super impressed. And we know she has hypertension and that fits the bill with what we see here. On the physical exam, the the other signs of thrombocytopenia with these bruises on the arms, the petechiae in the lower extremities, as well as the mild splenomegaly make me concerned for some sequestration in the spleen. Yeah, I mean, I, I would echo echo that as well i think things that kind of start popping up are just like your different like variable uh, cell lineage and dyscrasias and those sorts of things you start kind of thinking about now when i start seeing spinal as well as like some of these bruising and sorts of things but yeah i was not blown away by her her vitals the rest of her exam with the exception of the spinal and some bruising was not not crazy i don't think her uh, h-e-n-t exam really pointed me to anything I don't think back to someone that's had no... Exactly. Yeah. All right. Anything from you? Guys? I just have to say, if, if anybody listened to the clinical problem solvers last week, was it, I think, I don't know if you listened to it, Kevin, that there is a split of Megalis. And you have a... That sits there. Was it late? You know, it's, it's fancier than their, their, their usual, than their usual schemas. So they... they they went through a, a discussion of, of split amegaly and what it, what it, what it meant. So I won't say anything. I won't say anything beyond that. Although say this is another loaded. Yeah. And there's so much, there's so much in here in my mind as, as you start thinking about, about how this ties into her 
chief complaint, how it ties into, how it ties into those. Yeah. I feel like sometimes physical exams are frustrating and very unhelpful and other times they, they really do kind of point you in like a little bit of a, a certain direction. I think that definitely a lot of the findings can relate to each other, even though we don't know exactly what's going on. If we focus so much on pertinent, on pertinent positive, mm -hmm. and I actually think pertinent negatives are, are, are almost as, yeah. as important as those pertinent positives. And I was going to say, there's some good pertinent negatives here. And I, I want to just act, something I'm carrying with me on the residency is Dr. Ayer, I'm surprised he didn't say it, but he loves to say that physical exam is our first diagnostic test. Mm -hmm. And it really can direct the rest of the patient's course, at least in terms of our thinking process and what ultimately happens for them. But something I was looking for was more like the stigmata of chronic cirrhosis. And I'm not seeing it other than the possible thrombocytic E. Yeah, that's a really good point, especially with the sweat on Megaly. One of the things that you want to think about is like, is it because of the liver? And then obviously without the stigmata, there still could be like a mild level of it. But yeah, good to look for just to kind of determine whether or not this is like terrible cirrhosis or it's more like a mild. All right. Solid clone. So the next, I thought we have some labs, not all of them. Uh, we'll give them to you guys in pieces. But uh, so our CBC, we have a hemoglobin of 9.5, MCV of 90, white blood cell count of 5.6, and platelet count of 2. <laughs> yes, you heard that right. It's 2. The CMP, the electrolytes were all normal. Um, creatinine was 1.1, BUN 25, AST 31, ALT 41, ALKFOS 60, bilirubin 1.0 and albumin 3.0. So obviously there's an elephant in the room yep. on the labs here. And you guys had mentioned thrombocytopenia, but just now generally, how do you think about this in terms of, of diagnosis and, and next steps when you see something like this and pretty extreme too. The first thing that I'm concerned about is obviously the platelet count of two. She's susceptible to a number of pretty serious complications to that, namely spontaneous intracranial hemorrhage. So that is something that will have to be addressed right off the bat. And looking at the, the liver function tests, which are relatively close to or within normal limits there, I don't think that the, my earlier point about hepatitis C playing a role is as worrisome to me. Taking this in the context of what we saw in the last aliquot with the uh, physical exam, I think if I had to pick a diagnosis right now, the top of my differential would be immune thrombocytopenic purpura. That I think, if I'm not mistaken, does have a link to hepatitis C actually. So the, the picture to me looks most like that at this point. Yeah, no, I think that's really fair. I, the hard thing I, like, where I'm wrapping around is like my CBC is not, obviously you have a anemia that's showing up here. It's normocytic. I'm not seeing anything that's like really jumping out from a standpoint of like white blood cells where I think of like, a, I would maybe think of a little bit higher, but I don't know for sure. But yeah, obviously concern is your platelets at two right now. You kind of cross off something like the cirrhosis picture. We didn't see that on our physical exam. My idea of like dyscrasias are <laughs> basically removed from this. I would expect white blood cells to be higher or um, your hemoglobin to be higher, depending on which one you're thinking of uh, as well. I'd still be interested to see like some of like your auditing times and mm -hmm. factors as well sure. before I like jump into anything. Yeah, absolutely. 
And so you guys, you mentioned some things that you want uh, going forward. So we'll definitely bring in some more additional apps, mm -hmm. but kind of just wanted to take a step back and, and like comment on some things that you said. So Al, you did mention the hemoglobin is 9.5. In terms of thinking about thrombocytopenia on, and like kind of when I was reading into this case, you also want to know like, are there other cell lines down? Yeah. And then like, if they're down, is it significant? So like a hemoglobin of 9.5 here, it's, it's low, it's anemic. She's anemic. Could this have some kind of chronic component or is she actively bleeding? So kind of thinking about like, our two cell lines down here with, with a platelet count that's so extreme, maybe you, you kind of think of it as just an isolated thrombocytopenia, but that's also something that, that to look about, to look for there. And then Sam, you had also mentioned like high risk for spontaneous bleeding, which is a really good point to make. So like platelet, really the platelet count is not always correlated with bleeding risk, but when we get to like really low platelet counts, like down to like less than 20,000, 10,000, that's like when we really can be worried about something like spontaneous bleeding. So just making sure this patient gets platelets and isn't bleeding is also super important. It, in addition to thinking about the general diagnosis. I think we're lucky that she was only having nosebleeds right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> Would you check for other bleeding? Yeah. 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 I mean, even if she told me that she hasn't had any falls or any sorts of things, like I still think I would have a low index of suspicion to get something like a cranial. Okay. You think there's any clues here that even suggest you need to look for bleeding elsewhere? It's kind of read my mind, but that. At least for me, two days of nose bleeding isn't going to drop for hemoglobin that much. Okay. Yeah. So if we're assuming this is an acute change, mm -hmm. but I think we should to not miss that. Yeah. I'm looking elsewhere to see if she's hiding blood. Yeah. The thing I think about too, with like the hemoglobin and granted like sort of MCV is normal and like everyone talks about that, like your iron deficiency anemia is like your most common need, but actually like mixed anemia is probably your most common. She hasn't seen anybody. I have no idea what her nutritional status is like, but yeah, I definitely are with you. Like if her platelets are too, her hemoglobin is like this, she lives alone. Like. There's a high clinical like suspicion that you could have any sort of head hit or that would be very concerning to me. Yeah, I think those are all great points. And like you said, it is important to look for a bleed. I think that going back to the vitals that we had a couple aliquots ago, I think that at least for now, hopefully as you can see, you've reassured that if she is bleeding, it's not a fast enough bleed or she's hypotensive, tachycardic. But yeah, I think that is a really good point that we don't want to miss. And just for thrombocytopenia in general, I think that it's a really common problem that we see in the hospital. And so just like having kind of a good framework for how you approach it is really important. And so the first thing we always want to like rule out is like make sure that this isn't like a pseudothrombocytopenia. And so I think that would be kind of sad if that really had been valid. Yeah, but it's a good point. Was to say, oh, yeah, it's really challenging. Yeah, they want this unbelievable. I was, I mean, I was with you when I like, we were talking about this. I'm like, oh, can't rule out like pseudothermos. Yeah, yeah, you always want to make sure. And so they can, you know, get stuck. Like, yeah, exactly. They're in the tube. And so the first thing you want to do is either get a smear or you can actually run it in like a different tube that has citrate in it that prevents the platelet clumping. So first and foremost, make sure that this is truly like a thrombocytopenia. And then just kind of thinking like big picture, you know, what are the three kind of big ways that you can get not a lot of platelets? Are they not being produced? And so it's like the liver, it makes TPL, it goes to the bone marrow. So is it a problem with the liver? Is it a problem with the bone marrow? Are they being destroyed? You know, that can be just like immune mediated. They can be consumed. So 
Are you actually clotting somewhere? And so you think that you're worried about bleeding, but actually like one of the main concerns with someone about a plate with the platelet clout that low is if they're actually clotting and that's how the platelets are being used up and then, or are they being sequestered somewhere? So we saw like the mild splenomegaly. And so, yeah, I think it's important also to note that it doesn't have to just be one of these, like it can be a combination of a couple and a lot of times in hospitalized patients it is. And so, yeah, just being able to kind of like divide it into buckets like that, I think, and then working through it to kind of figure out exactly where we think the issue is with the platelets. So we said, you know, maybe there is an anemia, maybe it's chronic, we're not entirely sure, but just... Hypothetically, if you have an anemia and a thrombocytopenia, what are the things that you guys are worried about? That's kind of like a common combination of cell lines that are down. So, like, if it's like cancers, you know, like cell cancers, for whatever reason, something's taking your building blocks and is diverting it away from those sunny edges. That's it. Yeah, myelodysplasia is aplastic anemia can give you both of those as well, but the normal white blood cell counts kind of throws those for a rest as well. Even like this presentation, I think of like, I said this was earlier, like your multiple myeloma, but like nothing in her picture fits with that picture to be at all. Wow. Again, like I would expect a higher white blood cell count with a lot of these sorts of things. Also like different patient presentation as well. Yeah. And so I think that's what makes it important differentiating, like, is it a pancytopenia or is it a bicytopenia? Kennedy, like, you maybe want to like, say something about This screams like autoimmune disease to me, at least. But mine, for me, associating an anemia, or not her platelets of two, but in general, an anemia and a thrombocytopenia and bicytopenia, I, like lupus, pubic connective tissue diseases, et cetera. Uh, but also, like, equally as I had a suspicion for malignancy. What are, what are we missing? I, I, no, I'm just saying here, first of all, the one thing you guys are so right about is her plate of count is two. <laughs> so it's like, here's what her diagnosis yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yes. Her 50. I don't care what her, her diagnosis is. <laughs> so you're absolutely right about that. And so it's, there's a patient there. We can talk about the diagnosis all we want, but, but you're right. You know, I'm, I'm like, don't move her, don't let her. You get into the bathroom and I'm thinking about those things, but there's so there's two labs here that, that stand out to me. One of which you've already mentioned, which is the MCV. Mm-hmm. So I think the MCV actually here is potentially very meaningful. The fact that it really is normal. Mm-hmm. And when I think about, about dysplastic processes, I'm always thinking about big MCVs. Mm-hmm. So it could be mixed, but I. I still do that. And then when I think about a painful proliferative processes, I'm thinking about small MCVs. So this one sort of sits in the middle. But but there's another lab there that also is very meaningful to me, and that's the Billy Rubin. Oh, yeah. We didn't one. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> so the Billy Rubin point zero is, is very meaningful because, as Megan said, there is another, there is a set of conditions that causes anemia and thrombocytopenia. And seeing that Billy Rubin of one, at least moves me away from that. <laughs> Your Mahas. Yeah, yes. the Mahas. <laughs> Can't forget about the Mahas. So yeah, I think just like making sure that this isn't an emergency. Like, is this hit? Is it TTP? Catastrophic antifossolipid syndrome is something else that can cause a thrombocytopenia. That's an emergency. And then like a hemolytic syndrome. There, there's one other piece that I don't know if you guys are going to get to. So, you know, we put up CBCs and we're like, okay, there's a CBC. 
but sometimes you want to know what the smear looks like yeah, because yeah, the sure. smear here would mean so much in ruling in or out different things. So I, I don't know if that's coming now. Oh, so yes, we'll get to the smear. Just one other point that I wanted to make before we get to the smear um, was something that I learned when you're, because the smear is one way to determine is this like real thrombocytopenia or pseudothrombocytopenia. And actually looking at the size of the platelets is really helpful. And so if you have like larger platelets, that's something that suggests more that this is like a peripheral process and your bone marrow is um, compensating. Kind of the same way you see like an increased reticulous, reticulous eye count with anemias. Um, and if the platelets are small and kind of look to be like their normal size, then you're more worried about something that is kind of happening at bone marrow. Some. And yeah, I also wanted to kind of just talk about some of the diagnosis that we've already talked about in terms of HIT, like DIC, HOS, all those hemolytic anemias. So those are actually life-threatening causes of thrombocytopenia. And when we think about thrombocytopenia, a lot of times we think about bleeding. But a lot of those causes, the actual morbidity and mortality is associated with clotting. Lots of patients who have something like heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, they already have clots before you even make the diagnosis. And so getting that medication off board is a really important part of the management. So obviously we don't have enough labs so far in our aliquots to determine, hey, is this, is this DIC, is this TTP? But we do have a tool for HIT in our 4T score, which Megan is going to talk about next in terms of thinking about it, because this patient did have heparin 25 days ago in their past hospitalization. It's something that, you know, the timeline, these are all things we want to think about. The patient didn't receive it extremely recently, but because it's a life-threatening diagnosis that would require changing a management, it's something important to think about. Megan was kind of going to go over a little bit about how we would do that since we do have enough information right now to kind of guide our decision making. So just to be thorough, we'll kind of touch on the 4T score. More important, I think, with like patients that are hospitalized that have this like acute drop in their platelets while they're on heparin. This patient isn't on heparin anymore and management is to discontinue it, but would be important just for her to know like in any future cases if she is going to get in. So the components of it are first like the thrombocytopenia. It's a platelet count, like the magnitude of the platelet count. So if it's greater than 50%, um, if it's between 30 and 50%, or if it's less than 30%, um, you look at the timing. So how soon after she got the heparin, does she have the thrombocytopenia? If there's any thrombosis and then other causes for thrombocytopenia present. And based on that, you basically risk stratify these patients. If they're low risk, you're done. Like the risk of having hit is so low that you would probably be like hurting yourself by moving forward and sending the other assays because you're on the risk of getting a false positive. Um, that could kind of like send you down the wrong path. But for intermediate, intermediate or high risk patients, you do want to send the PF4 and followed by the serotonin release assay, which is like the gold standard for diagnosing it. Unfortunately, that does take like up to a week to come back. And so if you have a high enough sus suspicion for HIT, you discontinue the heparin um, and switch to something like ergotriban or one of the direct thrombin inhibitors. So, And... Even after our patients specifically, I just thought it was actually interesting that they get zero points for their platelet count too, because it's so low that we usually don't see platelet counts that low in HIT. So that's actually something that I learned from this, which I thought was interesting. And then in terms of the timing, this patient gets one point for prior heparin exposure within 30, but not the full two points because it wasn't within that five to 10 day period that you would really expect that kind of immune mediated process to happen. And then in terms of current thrombosis or subbilay, no. And then we said, you know, maybe possible for other causes of uh, thrombocytopenia. So yeah, I think Megan, that was a really good recap. We just wanted to make sure to go over that because um, such an important thing when thinking about thrombocytopenia, but kind of to bring Al and Sam back in, we were kind of wondering after seeing the labs that you have now, what 
other diagnostic like studies or labs would you want kind of going forward to know? I mean, you already told us we're getting a smear. So <laughs> that's a good answer. <laughs> And, and I know Sam, you mentioned you'd kind of wanted to know about like the, the factor levels. Yeah. I play one coach. Yeah. Any imaging that you guys would want at all? Well, as Al mentioned earlier, if we're concerned about bleeding, if we, you know, I'd, her mental status seemed to be her baseline or no egregious abnormalities there. So I don't know if we need to look into. Uh, a CT head to see if she's got any acute or more likely chronic uh, subdural hematoma there. Her BUN is a little bit elevated, if I recall correctly from the previous slide, but not too concerning. So we'll move on to the next aliquot. So we got some additional labs. We have the smear, no schistocytes, no platelet pumping um, with large platelets present. Reticulocyte production index is 3%, which is appropriate for green haptoglobin and LDH are normal. Her coags, all PT, PTT, INR, all within normal limits. Factors 2 and 5 within normal limits. Factor 8 slightly elevated. Um, fibrinogen, also normal. Her HCV viral load is elevated at 2 mil, 17,995. And then imaging-wise, a CT abdomen pelvis was ordered. Showed a mildly cirrhotic liver with splenomegaly, no active bleed. And they also got lower extremity ultrasounds, which were bilaterally and i do remember this isn't on our uh, they did actually get a ct head also just because of the severity of it and it shows you know, snow bleeding or anything so if you guys want to tap what maybe by the labs that you were asking for and kind of say what you were expecting or how this changes what you're thinking let's say your hcv oh yeah the viral load is, is. <laughs> Hides. It should be a good play here for sure. But the coags look normal. She has a normal had to glow in LDA. So I'm, I'm more reassured that this isn't a hemolytic process. Yeah. I mean, looking at our blood smear too, I'm a little bit more reassured. Like any of you, like your DICs, HLS kind of things, but I would expect to see like just the sites. Like Megan said earlier, like large platelets are present. So maybe we're pumping up platelets early. There's something to kind of think about as well. I'm not really blown away. I'm happy that our colleagues are kind of where they are. And to be honest, I mean, we have a mildly cirrhotic uh, liver, but I'm not seeing any things that are showing that she's in a severe cirrhosis of uh, place right now that would be potentially causing like a hypocoagulation. What do you think about the elevated HCV viral load if they're like otherwise normal LFTs? I mean, acute reinfection, which again, I think I don't want to get boxed into my own biases here, but to me supports more of that ITP picture in the context of HCV. <laughs> also oh. like just like trying to actively keep an open mind about it, but what I'm seeing here supports that on the differential. Kind of just continuing across stuff out too. Like we said, the Billy Rubin was reassuring now having a haptoglobin and LDH that are normal too. Like you're removing intravascular sorts of thing. So again, just like more information that like removes sorts of things that pushes me away from those and starts going towards kind of what Sam's thinking as well. I'm trying to piece together the slightly elevated factor A. Just I'm thinking if this was like a HCV, I know that's, well, it's one of the, that's an endothelial produced factor. So actually. The liver's working fine. Yeah. Yeah. The liver seems to be working. Yeah. 
And, and actually, the bone marrow actually seems to be working based upon what I see here. I think, again, there's certain things I don't see here. I don't see funky looking, you know, there's no burr cells or all these funny shaped cells that, that would push me into certain things. It seems like the bone marrow is, is, is trying to, is, is trying to work as hard as it can based, to, based upon what I see, which, which goes back to what, what you've said in, in that maybe this does seem like an immune mediated thing. Any other tests or anything that you would want? No promises that we have on them. Perfect round. Or what would we do at this point for the patient as well? Kind of knowing all this information and, and based on what you guys have hypothesized, any treatments or trials you'd want to think about? I would want to get her on something for, for viral row, low gun HCB right now. I mean, the fact that she hasn't been treated is, you know, I mean, look, what is this? Like, Sophos Beaver belt? Yeah. Beaver or something like yeah. that. Also, I, I would hope that like we give some platelets by this. Yeah. Like then, yeah. yeah. She has mucosal bleeding for uh, perhaps sort of a corticosteroid if we're uh, really concerned about the ITP. So, you guys are the doctors after all of the labs that we get. Would you start on steroids? I start on steroids. <laughs> I feel pretty confident, but. Yes. Yeah, because what do we know about ITP diagnosis of exclusion? Mm -hmm. um, kind of like at what point do you feel like you've been able to like exclude everything else that would be explaining the thrombocytopenia? And then at that yeah, point, I mean, do you treat? You've given us basically ample evidence that it's not these other things. Maybe if we pretty good evidence. We're pretty good. I'll give it to you. <laughs> All right. So we got one more, earlier. one more aliquot before we reveal the final diagnosis. You guys are ready. Mm -hmm. So multiple platelet transfusions were administered throughout hospitalization. Ultimately, there was significant improvement of the platelet count with administration of high dose IV dexin for four days in a dose of IVIG. The patient was discharged in stable condition with the platelet count 70 and a prescription for Altrombopag, a thrombofluidin receptor agonist. She was also instructed to follow up with hepatology due to high hepatitis C viral load. So you guys pretty much nailed it in terms of treatment. Because uh, so she got her platelets, she got her IV dexamethasone. They also gave her that IVIG and Altrombopag. If you guys were to, and you know, you've already hinted at it, but if you were to just state out your final diagnosis. So I'm going to let Sam have the glory here. <laughs> <laughs> Immune thrombocytopenic purpura in the setting of acute on chronic HCV. Alabas. All right. So you nailed it. Nailed it. Great job, guys. It's like you made the PowerPoint. Oh. <laughs> okay. Awesome. You guys did an amazing job. Um, you talked through such like a broad differential, considered all the organ systems, all the different ways um, in which thrombocytopenia can kind of develop. So. It was very impressive to hear that from all of you. We have a couple teaching points to close everything out and Nick's going to take us home. I thought that, you know, before I kind of go over these teaching points, something that you had mentioned, but is really important for this diagnosis is that it is a diagnosis of exclusion. And so even though we were suspicious early on, it's, you have to be really careful about making that diagnosis unless you rule everything out, which, of which we were able to do, like, as we got all of those labs and everything, so. Yeah, Nick and I kind of looking back at the case, you know, she did have like the mild splenomegaly. Can we say for sure there was no sequestration? Probably not. I'm sure that that did play a little bit of a component, especially without mild anemia. So 
yeah, just also important to note that it's not always exactly one thing. It can be a couple. I want to reflect on something cool Sam brought up, but I think both Sam and Al kind of demonstrated throughout the case with the reasoning is, at least for Sam, the, all the evidence was pointing towards ITP and we had then HCV is the likely cause, but he didn't prematurely close. He continued to consider other diagnoses and use the information as it was given to them and just reason through why or why not. It might be other things. I think that's, that's incredible. It speaks highly of your thought process in general. And I'm impressed. Thank you guys. So to me, you guys, we probably don't know the answer to this, Steve, which some ways is interesting. And I, like I say, and that is, okay, how does COVID fit into this? <laughs> right. That was, that was one of the things I was thinking. Because, about. because. Because we always wonder in this, what the trick was, yeah. right? And, and, it, and I might say it, the, the COVID triggered the hepatitis yeah. which triggered yeah. it. To, yeah. So th that would seem to be the more logical trigger in itself. And I, you guys may know it. Nick and I are. Who knows what COVID yeah. does is kind of my, exactly. my answer to that. But boy, it just seems so, it seems so enticing to say that yeah. COVID had some role in this because because when she walked in the hospital, it, we, we didn't talk about that, but I'm going to assume all, everything was normal. All these counts were normal when she walked in the hospital. Or maybe they were slightly abnormal, but not too worth it. Don't nobody sent her home with a platelet count of, of you know, 20,000. Yeah. And so it, trigger one, trigger two, boom. Yeah. Nick and I were talking about that too. It's like, we think this was secondary to hep C, but nobody can really be sure. I know like hep C and HIV are the two big ones when you think about ITP. But I'm sure if you look in the literature, you can probably find case reports of like a Pixaban causing ITP. And so that was a new medication for her. Like we can't say for sure that that wasn't the cause of it. She did improve with the steroids and ultimately it sounds like did get treatment for the hep C. So yeah, whether or not COVID played a role, I'm sure it did. It seems to do everything these days, but all right, so just a little bit about immune thrombocytopenia. So we've talked about already that it's primarily immune-mediated destruction of platelets. The mechanism is not fully understood, but there are some hypotheses that we have. It's likely some component of like a type 2 hypersensitivity where we have our body making IgG antibodies, which are directed against platelet membrane glycoproteins. One that's commonly cited in the literature is GP3B2B3A, but all kinds of different glycoproteins can be targeted. And usually we were, we don't know which one. And we already mentioned that it is a diagnosis of exclusion. There's two types. So there's primary immune thrombocytopenia, um, which is essentially, we just don't know what the cause is and we don't have any hypothesis for what the cause is. The incidence of this is actually the highest in interestingly pediatric patients. So like patients who are under 10 and then it kind of decreases in adolescence and kind of rises again and, and is more common in older patients. So I thought that was an interesting epi epidemiology for it. And then there's also secondary. So secondary to something else. One of those things could be infections. These are usually HIV and HCV, which was the case for our patient. Um, CN, CMV, um, varicella zoster virus, all kinds of viruses can, can do it. And it's usually what we think is molecular mimicry where the body makes antibodies against the virus. And then those antibodies somehow recognize virus-like parts on the platelet membrane and then attack it. Um, and then there's also for secondary immune thrombocytopenia, just general immune alteration. So 
there's loss of peripheral tolerance, and then we're creating antibodies uh, against self-proteins. And these usually occur in patients with um, comorbid autoimmune disorders like lupus, the catastrophic antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, Evans syndrome, or chronic lymphocytemia. And then just a couple more things. Usually when you have a diagnosis of it, it's classified as newly diagnosed, which would be less than three months. And that would be the case for our patient. But I thought interestingly that this diagnosis can persist with the patient. It can last up to even a year, in which case it's chronic. And these patients are on chronic therapy for it. Two thirds of patients present with bleeding, as was the case for our patient, but 20 to 30% in the literature are reported to be asymptomatic. And this is just discovered on routine. Characteristically, it does not affect other cell lines, although th things are complex. Well, we couldn't really explain our patient's anemia. And then primarily there, the site of destruction is the spleen, although only a minority of patients, less than 10%, have palpable splenomegaly on exam. And if there is clinical suspicion for any immune thrombocytopenia testing for it, definitely HCV and HIV is indicated. And then infectious disease can kind of pitch in on other um, testing that would be recommended for those common associations. And then the treatment is complex. Usually it's responsive to steroids and our patient was given IVIG. There are also a lot of new therapies. Thrombopoietin receptor agonists are one of them that this patient was given. They can take them or and sometimes they can take them chronically and it boosts their platelet count over time. And then last resort sometimes for these patients would be splenectomy, which can ultimately clear the, the body's ability to eventually destroy the platelets. So those are just some interesting things that I learned in reading about this case and just wanted to share. One other thing that I learned um, as well is sometimes what they'll do is they'll give the platelets and then actually check the platelet level like an hour after they give them. So there's like a predicted rise in platelet number that you'd expect based on how many platelets you're giving them. And if it's like much lower than expected, you can be kind of assured that this is some like more of a consumptive process. So especially if you're worried about like ITP, then that definitely does point towards it. Down. You guys were great. So as, as usual, I think what, when did you first mention? Sam did it like that. I think Sam did it like this. Right at the, the, the beginning, was it Elephant? Right after he introduced himself. <laughs> 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 Secondary, I have a I think it was when we got the past medical history, is when you jumped into it. What reflections do you guys have? How is it being in the hot seat? Oh man, I can't pays dividends. It's nice to do it with, with Rudy here. No, and honestly, you guys too, I think it was, it's a great experience to be able to walk through these, these sorts of things and see how everyone kind of pieces this together to the different sorts of mental scaffolding that you can use for sure, these these problems. Yeah, it's always inform our own processes yeah. too. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. You guys are great. Dr. Glockham Clucking with the press that you said that you're aspiring more no medicine stuff. No danger swiggles. You guys are wonderful. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks to all of our listeners. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thanks again for listening. Person, time, and place. See you next time.